All right, let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1 here in a minute. First thing, though, you need to note is that Galatia was not a city. It's a territory, and it certainly was back then, and it encompassed the area that's now Turkey, which seems to be in the news all over again. Paul had founded several churches there in the Galatian uh, territory. And after these churches were established, it wouldn't be very long, as we're going to find out, that certain men began to come in, and as Paul says, they began to pervert the gospel uh, that Paul had been teaching, which, of course, is the gospel of grace. They began to preach another gospel, which he said was not another. Now, the word gospel, as you well know, means good news. And what better news could a man hear than that God can and will forgive us according to faith alone in Jesus Christ? That's great news. Now, but if you turn around and then you tell me that uh, you've got good news and as long as I keep the law of God and the rules and the regulations and, you know, as long as I walk a certain way and cut my hair a certain way and wear a certain dress a certain way or whatever that certain thing is, that's not very good news. That's like telling a guy he hit the lottery. And it's like, wow, you hit the lottery for $5 million. You go, wow, awesome. We're going to give that to you $150 a week. Well, the problem is you'll be dead before, <laughs> before you ever get the $5 million. It's not good news. So they were trying to pervert the gospel. And so Paul wrote this epistle to the Galatians in order to confront and to correct bad teaching. And these guys, once again, had followed him in there in the churches and were just really trying to bring people back into bondage. Paul was trying to save them from these false teachers and were trying to uh, help the people not to be enslaved again. Uh, we were having a discussion. Uh, of course, those of you who don't know it, I'm Jewish by blood. And the Gentiles don't grasp, I think, fully what's going on here in the Church of Galatia. Uh, which was mainly Jews. And Paul's going to say as we start into our study that he was surprised, amazed, he said, that you're so soon removed from the gospel of grace uh, back into another gospel. Why would they do that? Because it seems to anybody who understands the gospel of grace, that seems crazy. But if you go back to the book of Exodus, you remember when the Jews left and they were taken out of Israel, you know, they were, had been delivered. From what? Slavery. 400 years they were in slavery. You know, had been beaten and, and, and their cries, actually God said, I've heard the cries of my people. And yet it wasn't very long they were out there and what did they want to do? They wanted to go back. And why? Because it was familiar. You know, there's something in mankind that just has to have, you know, he's, he's not afraid of familiarity, even if it's bad. Even if it's, listen, I worked in the prison system for quite some time. And the return rate at most prisons, at least at the one I worked in, which was a high, uh, high security in, in Iowa, uh, the return rate was over 85%. And it's the way it is in most prisons. Why? Because they get institutionalized and people get in there. And, and I knew a case of one man who was an older fella. He had spent 50, over 50 years in the prison system. And then he finally was paroled. And he wasn't out more than a week, and he stabbed his parole officer. And of course, he went back to prison. But then later on, he was talking to the prison psych, and he told the prison psych that he, he didn't know how to live. He couldn't, he couldn't operate in the free world. Why? Because he was so institutionalized, it's all he knew. And so when we read about people turning back again to stupidity and back into bondage and wanting rules and regulations and Nobody knew rules and regulations better than the Jews, but they were used to it. It was familiar to them. So it doesn't shock me at all, as Paul's going to say that, uh, because these guys simply were falling prey to what they had already been delivered from, which is crazy, but it actually happened. It's been said, you know, if Paul hadn't taken the stand that he did, which he does, takes a very hard stand against that kind of legalism in Christianity. Had he not done that, the church of Jesus Christ today, the, the, as we understand it, as we know it, uh, would be a very different place as a Gentile. If you 
would be in church, it would be a very different place today. It, it wouldn't look nothing like Christianity. and It, it, it just wouldn't. Uh, it would be a sect of Judaism because that's really how it started off. You know, as Paul's going to say, you remember when Peter separated himself. He, he had been hanging around with the Gentiles and enjoying his life of grace and freedom, you know, snacking on a pork chop, a little bit of bacon here and there, you know, which according to the law was absolutely forbidden. Yet when, when Jews came from Jerusalem, he separated himself. So that mindset, you know, that Jewish mindset, is Paul's going to call it that he had prospered in the Jews' religion. So Paul had come to a point where he had totally separated himself from that so that he called it the Jews' religion, even though he was a Jew. Because the gospel of grace, before the cross, there was only two types of people, Jew and Gentile. After the cross, there's only one type of people made up of Jews and Gentiles, and that's the church. And that's the way Paul saw it. And yet there's those who wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to the law. And we're going to find here in this epistle, Paul makes a very strong treatise against any form of legalism. It's so strong that, that, that he says some pretty harsh things that some people would say where he talks about it in our first verses where he says anybody who would preach any other gospel should be accursed. So that's how strong. You know, we can't keep the law. And why? Because nobody's been able to do it. So often people try to you know, earn God's favor by, by doing it. And this is what they were being taught. We call this Judaizing. And they were really trying to turn these people back into Jews and, and, and having a relationship with God based on the law. Now the interesting thing, I think it was last year we spent, or we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And really it was the book of Galatians that brought about the Protestant Re Re Reformation. Because Martin Luther, as you know, uh, not unlike Paul himself, was extremely zealous uh, in the religion that he had chosen, which was Catholicism at the time. And actually, those have, who study history called him, he was more of a monk than other monks. I mean, he was far exceeded anything you know, within the Catholicism. I mean, he was just really up there. He was very zealous for his religion. But as many of you probably know, Martin on his way to Rome, he got to Rome in order to go there on an appeasing trip. He went there to flagellate himself and to make himself suffer for the cause of Christ because that's what it, that's, he thought that's what you had to do. That's what he'd been taught. And of course, Martin Luther would climb the steps on his knees as many devotees would do. And sometimes in history, they told us that they would put pebbles on the steps, so that as you went up on your knees, you know, the pebbles would cut into your knees and would draw blood. And there's a sect of, of Catholicism to this day who practice flagellation. And they actually wear bands that have needles and stuff in them and they strap them around their legs and wear them under, just to cause themselves pain because they think somehow they're suffering for the cause of Christ. But as Martin was climbing the steps, you know, he said he heard a voice from God and God spoke to him and said, Martin, and, and God actually quotes from this book, from the book of Galatians, and he says, the just shall live by faith. And of course, as you know, Martin Luther got up from that time and he never went back to it. Uh, and it changed his whole life, not to the point where it started a, a fire, really, in, in, the, in the country and in Germany. And of course, the Reformation began. So this gospel, this, this book of Galatians is a glorious epistle and it, it sets men free, and it's brought them into a vital relationship with God through faith. It opens the door to all men that, are free, that, that they might freely come to God and really establish their relationship with him based on God's love and God's grace. It rejects man's effort or merit and a performance-based approach to God. It just flat-out rejects it. Religion is always man trying to reach up to God, but relationship is God reaching down to us. So when these false teachers came here to Galatia, the first thing that they sought to do was to discredit Paul. And I really find this to be true with just about any false teacher. If, if your life has been moved or changed or strengthened, 
in the things of God through a particular minister or a particular preacher. Those who are trying to convert you to a, a works-based religion will always begin to attack those men of God. And they try to discredit the one who you were converted under or maybe that you were just strengthened by. And they want to discredit them. But for what purpose? In order to bring you back into some other bondage. I think it's interesting when you're dealing with false teaching that they almost never evangelize. They're not winning new souls. They're not trying to evangelize. They try to convert the converted. They want to take somebody who's already a believer and make them something else, you understand. And this is, this is unfortunate, but the Mormons are a good example of this. I, mean, I know they're an easy target, but it's so true. That's, they go door to door, and they're trying to really to convert the converted. They really don't evangelize much at all. Uh, not really. The people who wind up, wind up Mormons usually were Christians before. Or Jehovah's Witnesses are the same way. So they're trying to convert. So false teaching is just the way they operate. As Paul started this epistle, he first reaffirms his apostleship as he said here in verse 1. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I find it interesting that people even today tend to ask the same question uh, that the Pharisees asked John the Baptist. You remember when John was out baptizing uh, in Jordan? And people were coming to him, and he was freely baptizing them. The Pharisees came to him and said, by what authority do you do this? You know, who, who gave you permission to come out here and baptize? You know, you remember when Jesus, there in a, was it Mark chapter 11, when Jesus was cleansing the temple, and after he had went through that cleansing, they came to him and they said, by what authority do you do this? It would seem that people always are asking or looking for a basis of your authority. If you're in the ministry, they always want to know that. So they actually questioned Paul's authority. They wanted to know, you know, who gave you the authority to be an apostle? Who, called, who laid hands on you? It's funny because even within the church today, whether it's a high church or low church, they have what they call the apostolic succession of laying on of hands. It's a fancy term for a, a ritual as far as authority goes within the church. So basically, here's, here's what their ordination looks like. Uh, and they do this even today. The bishop will lay hands on a candidate, somebody who's been called or whatever. And he'll lay hands on that candidate. And the way they see it is that as the bishop lays hands on the candidate and begins to pray over him, because the bishop who laid hands on the candidate at one time had hands laid on him by another bishop, and the one before him had hands laid on him by another bishop, and then by another bishop, and by another bishop, they call it the succession of laying on of hands because they believe that they can now qualify or quantify, actually, their ordination going all the way back to Peter. And so that's the way they see it in their minds. Unless you have a bishop lay hands on you, then you're really not ordained. That's the way they see it. Thus, you'll find in many denominations a lack of elders within the church. Why? Because according to the denominations, the only person that's an elder is the one who's ordained or who had a bishop laid hands on him. Uh, or her in so, many, in so many cases. But this is what Paul's arguing about. And I've, I find it interesting that even when, when you look at modern Christianity, and when I say modern, I mean the last 500 years, even in the Reformation, Martin Luther and so many of them meant well, John Wesley and so many, they meant well as they established their denominations. The problem is they actually brought a lot of these bad practices with them. Instead of just starting afresh, starting with the Word of God, saying, what's our example in the Scripture? They brought a lot of that with them. And the ordaining of, of ministers was, was one of the problems that they brought because this apostolic succession uh, is something, this laying on of hands is something that they brought over with them. As Paul pointed out, his authority 
And you need to make note of that in, in this verse. That his authority and his ordination went back to one much greater than Peter. Paul points his, his apostolic authority came not by man, he says, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. You can't get no higher than that. That's who gave him his authority. I remember Pastor Chuck saying years ago, and I totally agree with him on this, he said that ordination of man is totally worthless. It means nothing. Now, unfortunately, people sitting in the pew often don't realize this, and they don't realize that men who are standing at the pulpit or whatever anymore, and it's unfortunately to the point where it's not just a man or a woman, but now it can be an it standing in the pulpit. I know that sounds harsh, but it's fact. You know, they don't care anymore. Now it's, the, the lines have been blurred so much that you hardly have any idea who's being ordained or what's, what's doing the ordaining. But ordination of man means nothing. It's worthless. It's, it, it, to be ordained by a man, it's, Chuck said he had no interest in it. I have no interest in it either. Because ordination comes from God, as Paul points out here. You know, if any man is ordained, his ordination has to come through Jesus Christ. And all we can do at best as people is simply ratify what God has already done. You know, you see the work of of the Lord and the Holy Spirit in the life of the, that's why Paul as we get to first and second Timothy you know in first Timothy chapter 3 he's going to say if any man desires the office of a bishop he desires a good work therefore a bishop must be and yet how do you wind up if you actually follow the word of God and you're using first Timothy chapter 3 as your template for the men that you're choosing how do we wind up with such ungodliness in the pulpit I mean how does that happen what happens because they disregard the word of God. And in reality, they begin to preach another gospel as we're going to see. But all we can do as is, is, is men is, is ratify or to agree with God that this, is, this, is, this person is called. You know, someone laying hands on you isn't going to qualify you for the ministry. It just isn't going to happen. Unfortunately, though, not only in church history, but in church today, hands have been laid upon all kinds of scoundrels and charlatans pedophiles who were proclaimed by the laying on of hands as ministers of Jesus Christ and yet they are not were not never have been ministers of Christ and as I said before they're charlatans they, they're scoundrels unscrupulous men and women who seek their own really but they have papers that somebody laid hands on them that somebody ordained them this was my question before when we were dealing with the issue in denominations of how ordination was taken care of. You know, my question is, is when you see all this stuff, if you, if you caught my Facebook page the other day, somebody else sent me a whole other thing about the United Methodists, and it was a bunch of women standing out front, wearing their frocks, you know, look like Catholic priests, holding signs that said pro-life, pro-gay, pro-choice, which means I believe in sin. I think it's okay and we don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God says. That's what they're saying. And they, want, they think that wearing religious garb somehow makes you, you know, an authority on the word of God. No, 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 that's, it's, it's totally wrong. But this is where the church is at. But this is why Paul is warning these guys. He's telling them this stuff is going to creep in. And this was 2,000 years ago. We're so close to the Lord's coming today, I'm convinced, because we're seeing so much of it happen. And, and really, we're the ones on the outside because when you take a stand, you go, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't say, you're going to be looked at like you're crazy. So Paul, Paul proclaimed himself an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Look at verse 2. And he says, And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul mentions all the brethren which were with him there at the, in the churches of Galatia. In some of his epistles, Paul, a lot of times, in his salutations, would give quite a bit of information. He would say a lot of things about people. But he keeps this one very short and direct and to the point. And he just uses his typical Pauline epistle uh, you know, intro, his salutation, by saying grace and peace 
And of course, you guys already know this, but for those that don't, the word grace comes from the Greek word charis. It's where we get the word charismatic from. And it really just means anything that's beautiful, anything that's lovely. And when you think about the grace of God, that's certainly a fitting description because it is very beautiful. It's very gracious. You know, and then he says, of course, peace, shalom from the Hebrew. Typical Christian greeting at the time. It certainly was in Paul's writings. Uh, He used it a lot 17 times. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul here, speaking of Jesus Christ, said that he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present world. The world he's talking about, of course, is the world that was then and is now. And maybe now even more evil than it's ever been. Did you ever believe that you as a Christian, or even as a person, would ever see the madness that you're watching going on in the world? I'm a student of history, and I have been for many, 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 many years. I love the Second World War era, you know, from about 25 all the way to like 48. And I love that era. And no doubt, when you study that and you see the craziness that cropped up in the world, you know, in the early 30s, and how socialism was taking over, not just in Germany, but really in all of Europe and even in America. You know, a lot of people think, you know, some of the heroes that we, and I say that loosely, uh, in the 30s, men like uh, um, Lindbergh, you know, who was famous for flying his plane, you know, the spirit of St. Louis, you know, across the Atlantic. And, but this was a man who was a very openly socialist. You know, he protested about the America entering into the war, but so many others. And they were leaning towards communism. Why? Because communism hadn't been tested yet. It had only been around at that time since the, you know, 1919, really. It had only been around for about 20-some years. So it hadn't had time to fail. And so they were misguided. But you saw this rise of socialism. And of course, in Nazism, fascism is just another type of socialism. The difference between communism and socialism really is communism means to enslave men by force. Socialism means to enslave men by vote. Never forget that. It's a, but, the, but the result's the same. Like I've said before, it's like falling from the 8th floor or the 85th floor. The result's still the same. You see, that's the problem with socialism. So Paul was speaking of Jesus Christ and he gave himself to to deliver us from this present evil world and it's even worse today. Satan is the God of this world as the Bible calls him. In John 14, 30, Jesus, of course, speaking, he said, hereafter I will not talk much with you for the prince of this world cometh and he has nothing in me. When Satan tempted Christ, if you remember, he showed him the kingdoms of the world. It's a great passage of scripture. And he showed him the kingdoms and all the glory of them. And he promised to give them to Jesus if he would simply bow down and worship him. And Satan actually kind of bragging declared that these kingdoms are mine, he says in that verse. And I can give them to whoever I will. And my point being is Jesus never argued that. Jesus never said, well, that's not true. Jesus never argued that fact because Satan is the God of this world. He's the God that they worship. He's the God that they bow down to. And because it's under his control, you see things coming to fruition. But the world was given to Satan by man, not by God. Man forfeited it, but that's a whole other sermon for another time. Man forfeited that to him. And so, but Jesus Christ came that he would deliver us from this present evil world. The purpose of Christ is to deliver us. He wants to do that. He desperately wants. The Bible says God doesn't wish or doesn't will that any man would perish, but that all would come to repentance, and of course, through Jesus Christ. And his deliverance is twofold. We're being delivered in this present world. You know, we're delivered in a spiritual way from the hold that it has on us. We don't have to live by this world's standard. We're in the world, but not of the world if you're in Christ. But there's coming a time, and I really believe very soon, that we're going to be delivered out of this world. 
And so our redemption is going to be complete. And we're watching it. Don't get dismayed. I was talking with a man last night, and when I started talking about the coming of the Lord, you know, you could see the hesitation in his, in his, in his face. And I said, look, I mean, even though we talk serious about these things, and we see how evil the world really is, and how crazy, mixed up, confused the world is. In reality, if you're a child of God, that's a, that's a glorious thing for us because we, we're sitting back and we're going, well, the talk, clock's ticking, you know? We, we could be living at the time when we really do see the rapture of the church, that, that Jesus Christ comes and takes the church. We, we could really be living in that. Um, so many times, you I mean, look, think about the Jews the first time Jesus came. They didn't realize that they were living at that time either, which is why the Jews rejected him. You know, a lot of people... I think, misunderstand why the Jews reject Jesus Christ. Well, they rejected him because for the same reason that people will miss the, the coming of Christ the next time because they're not, they weren't expecting him because a lot of them, like us, they said, oh, you know, we read the prophecies. If you're a student of Scripture, you read the prophecies and you go, well, yeah, I know that's going to happen, but it won't happen in my lifetime. It's not going to happen when I'm here. You know, that's what they thought. You know, when, when, when somebody says something, that, that seems to be out of the norm. You know, the Bible tells us in the last days, scoffers will come, walking after their own flesh, saying, where is the promise of his coming? People who reject, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the rapture of the church. And you can. It's not a, it's not a necessary doctrine, but I think it's, it's necessary if you're going to be prepared. Certainly not salvational. It's got nothing to do with it. We can agree to disagree but I believe it, not because somebody taught it to me, but because I see it in the scriptures. I think it's absolutely there, especially if you read it from the Greek. Christ is going to come, and there's coming a time. And everything points to it. Somebody was talking uh, tonight before we came in and said that they were discussing that there's really nothing left to be done. You know, what's left to be done before the coming of Christ? Nothing. You know, it's, I mean, keep it in mind, though. I mean, the Bible says a thousand years with the Lord is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God's not bound by the space-time continuum. It's just, so don't get dismayed is what I'm saying. And, and quite the opposite. We need to be encouraged by the fact that things are getting crazy, and evangelism ought to be the forefront of what we're doing now. You know, reaching out to people and really trying to get, and as a matter of fact, I'm, I was excited because now uh, Calvary Chapel Newark, uh, we will not, you know, we have our daily show, which is what we're taping right now, something beautiful, and there's people who listen to us, and, and, uh, and we get notices, and, and people let us know about that all the time, but now we're going to be on Sunday morning, you know, and so now people will get uh, both sides of the story, so to speak, and I'm excited about that, but, but we're reaching out. People are being one to Christ, and those who are already one to Christ are being strengthened in their walk with the Lord. And I was so blessed, that, you know, I, I said it Sunday, but for those who will be listening to this broadcast, you know, I, I, we were at a Gideon's Bible uh, International uh, Pastor's Appreciation Dinner. It was really great. It was the first one I ever went to, but I was, I was absolutely blessed by it. I thought, I personally thought the speaker was good. I, I loved him. I, I actually, I wanted to speak to him afterward. I didn't get a chance because this older fellow stopped me. And he saw my name tag and he says, oh, I know you. He says, well, I mean, I... I don't know you, but I've been listening to you for years. And he was much older than I was, you know. I mean, I don't know how old, but much older than I was. Unless I would find out that he's the same age, and then I would be discouraged. Um, but but I, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it for the time being, that, that he was much older than I was. But, but he took me off to the side, and me and my wife were standing there, and, and he says, you know, he goes, I've learned so much listening to your radio show. And he says, my, my walk with the Lord is entirely different than what it was. And, and that's what I always hear. And like I told him, I said, well, brother, listen to me. It ain't me. If, if it wasn't maybe somebody else, it's the Word of God that does the transformation. If you just take people through the Scriptures, it's the Word of God that changes lives. But that's my point. My point is, is that because things are getting crazy, because things are chaotic, because things look insane, we're so much closer to the coming of Christ than we ever were before. And we need to use that as, a, as an opportunity to cause us to be more evangelistic, you know, to witness to people every chance we get. Uh, now, I, I don't have the opportunity that some of you have in that I'm just not in the place. I mean, when I came out of the workforce many years ago and I wound up pastoring full-time, 
you know, the only people I get to see really is in front of me, to be honest with you. I'm not in the workplace. And every place I ever worked, you know, uh, we use it as a evangelistic field. I mean, we even had a sign on our church in Zanesville anyway that said, you're now entering the mission field when you would leave the church. Because I believe that. Whether you're at work or many of us are retired, you know, so now it's going to be at the... Uh, the LCAP Center or wherever, you know, whatever that place is that you spend most of your time. You're always going to be, but as a pastor, some many times, and other pastors are hearing me knows what I'm talking about, we don't have that opportunity. So radio, it becomes the medium for me to win people to Christ because I'm not in that place, but by voice and by radio, we can be literally all over the world now because all radio stations broadcast online. And it's amazing to me that we're heard in so many other countries uh, when we look at our uh, analytics, it's amazing how many places they're listening to us. So uh, it's important to reach out and, and as we see the day approaching. Now, look at verse 6. Paul says, I marvel. You are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So they were called into the grace of Christ. You need to make note of that. They were called into it. You've been called into it. I've been called into it. Paul taught them salvation through faith alone. The five solaces, you know, we get from the Reformation. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word alone, to the glory of God alone. So he taught them that. that was, and what he taught them was that salvation isn't anything that you can earn. You can't earn it. You can't keep it by earning it. You can't, you have nothing to do with it. In fact, you don't even deserve it. I don't deserve it. You can't buy it. It's something that you must receive freely from God. You know, and consider this, when you think about the issue of the doctrine of election, and I'll throw this in for free, it's not my notes. But when you look at the Apostle Paul, who was the author, if you will. Of course, Christ gave it to him, but he was the one. Paul even called it his gospel, you know. But look at how Paul was called. You know, when he was on the road to Damascus, he was in the Jews' religion, and he was on his way to do deathly harm to the church of Jesus Christ. Was Paul seeking Christ at that time? No. Was Paul looking to be a Christian? Far from it. He was persecuting the Christians. But what did Jesus do? Jesus was the one who intervened. God was the one who opened up Paul's eyes to see the truth. It was Christ who knocked him to the ground. And then when Paul got up, he was a different man. But even in that, when you think about Paul being a Jew at that time, I was laughing because before study tonight, I said, you know, when you think about it, the first thing out of Paul's mouth, and I think there's two things, but one of them is this. The first thing out of his mouth that he says to the Lord is, what shall I do? Now, as a Gentile, when you read that, you're going, yes. But as a Jew, I'm telling you, that was his Judaism. Why? Because that's what he knew. How did he relate to God before? Through works. Through works. So he said, what must I do? What do you want me to do? Give me, some, give me something to do. <laughs> so typical. So typical. And that's why God was able to use Paul to preach the gospel according to grace, plus nothing. Because when Paul came to it, because he had been so miraculously delivered from it, he appreciated it. His gratitude for the freedom that he had in Christ was so astounding that now, giving this situation in the church of Galatia, he stands against those who would bring anybody into any kind of legalism, and he stands against it full force. You know, he even tells them, I marvel, man, I'm shocked, he's saying, that you would be so easily removed from him that called you into the grace unto another gospel. Verse 7, he says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert. You need, if you're taking notes, you need to make note of the pervert, the gospel of Christ. Paul said it, there are those who would trouble you and they pervert the gospel. They're there's plenty today, my friends, who are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, because that's what the word gospel means. It's good news, and it is good news if it's preached appropriately and accurately. It's great news for you and me. Hmm. Jesus Christ, by placing man 
under his works, under his doing, had set men free. But there were others who came in, like Paul's fighting against, who wanted to put men back under their legal obligation to God. Not Jesus' fulfilling of the legal obligation, but their obligation, imposing their rules and regulations, their standard of holiness. I'll tell you, it scares me for people. Every time I see, now listen to me, don't misunderstand me. When I see people who think that they're achieving righteousness or a holy standing with God, by something that they wear. Or how many times you've been in a store and you'll see people walking, women mainly, you know, with a bun in the back of their head. I'm not picking on you. But why do they do that? And I remember one lady telling me, because I asked her, well, that's my subjection bonnet, you know. Okay, I understand that, but but what does it do for you? Well, you know, we we believe, she said, that this, this, this is a holiness thing. And I said, really? Wow, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Because what you're saying is what Jesus Christ did on Calvary wasn't good enough for you. Oh, I would never say that. Oh, that's absolutely what you just said. You absolutely said that. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. You said that wearing your hair in a particular way made you holy in the sight of God. God says your righteousness is like filthy rags. I won't even go into the graphic description that I could that what that really means, but it would be enough to disgust anybody. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. On your best day, in your best garb, in your best hairdo, you fall so short of what holiness really is. But not Jesus. Jesus, on an average day, is so holy and so beautiful and so perfect and so righteous and so God, and he so freely gives that to you and says, I know you're not, but in me you are. So I'll take your rags and I'll give you riches. Man, what an exchange. That's good news. That's good news, and that's what Paul's fighting against. But so many people today, you know, they're, they're seeking to be righteous, to be holy by something that they do, and it's never going to work. Or maybe praying a certain way, me and Marilyn was talking about that before study tonight. People will go through rituals of prayer. You remember when Jabez was the thing and everybody had their 40-day thing. I'm not, don't get mad at me if you did the 40-day Jabez prayer. I'm just telling you that it didn't bring you any closer to God than what you already are. Paul said, I see to it always that I have a conscience void of offense toward God. I pray for you continually is what he was saying. We should always be in conversation with the Lord. You know, it's a state of, of, of fellowship with him. You know, and that's a beautiful place to be. But this is what Paul's fighting against. He said this gospel, he said, which is not another, but there are those who pervert it. They want to bring you into bondage. I remember when I was on staff at a church of Christ in Christian Union, which is what we would call a holiness. And I say that jokingly, but that's what they call it. That's a holiness church. I was there as the music minister. I'll never forget this. And I'd been there for a couple of years, you know. And, uh, you know, faithfully, I was there every time and did my thing. And, and uh, I remember one day the pastor came, and I liked him, he was a good guy. And he says, Doug, I would like you to think about joining the church. I thought he was joking. So I started laughing. <laughs> I said, that's a good one, brother. He went, well, I'm not kidding. And I said, well, what do you mean? How can I join? I'm a minister here. I'm the music. He goes, well, yeah, but technically you're not a member. I'm not? No. You see, it's, not, it's no big deal. We just have you come in front of the church, you see. And, you know, we're just going to say a little prayer. Uh, but here's this little page. You read this. You know, take this home and read it at your leisure. And, you know, just sign that. And, you know, then we'll, we'll, we'll go through that. So I took it and I went home and as I read it, I was flabbergasted. It was a list of here's what I will not do. I will not smoke. I will not chew. I will not go with girls that do. I, you know, I, I, I won't taste alcohol. I won't do this. I won't, you know, I won't eat my Bible over my Bible. I won't drink coffee over my, I'm not making this up. I'm being honest. You know, and I mean, it was lengthy. 
And I went, they don't even understand the grace of God. And I'm a minister here. And I assumed, because I wasn't a pastor, that they did. So I went back to Larry. And I said, Larry, did you, did you sign this? He says, well, yeah, yeah, we joined. I said, do you know what James says, right? To have brother Jesus? James said, I will swear not, neither by heaven nor by earth nor by any other oath. I said, brother, I'm telling you right now, I don't do any of this stuff that's on here, but I would never sign a paper saying that I will not. Because all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought into the bondage of any. That's scripture, that's not man. I'm not going to be brought into bondage just because you think that that looks like holiness. That's not holiness. Jesus is holiness, brother. And that's what I'm clinging to. So there's all kinds of places out there that, you know, you can sign the petition or sign the, the pledge, you see, to make you holy. Paul was fighting this. You know, when it comes to the knowledge of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, rather, rather than a legal relationship with God, you enter into this loving relationship with God. And to be honest with you, the relationship that I live with the Lord now, according to grace, I'm sure in the eyes of some people is more stricter than it would be if I was following the rules. Why? Because as we're told in Scripture, the law tends to bring about sin. It stirs it up. The law's good. And it's righteous and it's good, but, but it, it brings out something in me. What's that something? Rebellion. <laughs> That's what it brings out in you. If you ever question that, you know, go look at a sign that says, do not step on the grass. And when you see those signs, you know I'm talking, and maybe you don't struggle with it, but I got to be honest, there's something in the back of me that says, do it. <laughs> go for it. Me and my wife, you know, we were, we were at the museums because I love museums. But she hates taking me to museums. Why? Because I have to admit, I, I usually wind up having to repent. Why? Because there'll be signs everywhere that says, do not touch the display. And when I see that, there's just something in it that makes me want to go, you know, I just can't help it. And my wife was like, man, they got cameras. They're going to be, I, said, I don't care. I just, I just want to touch it, you know. But that's what the law does. D.L. Moody told a story. Years ago, obviously years ago. And he had been ministering on the reservation and had befriended this young man who had really given his life to Christ and who had sat under his teaching and really had a grip on the grace of God. And he was bringing him back to minister at the church and he had arranged for him to stay at this lady's house. And when he, when he, got, when he got to the house, there was this discussion that was going on about the issue of law and grace. And this woman was arguing for a mixture of both. That somehow you needed rules, you know, you got to know the rules in order to get by. And this Indian fellow, he said, you know, when I come to the train station, on the platform was sign that said, do no spitting on platform. He said, sign was covered with spit. He says, yet I come to your house. I see no sign that says no spitting and there's no spit. See, that's, that's good theology. Why? The Bible says those who are, you know, dead have ceased from sin. Why? Because you're not under the law. I mean, I've had people come to me and we've heard this argument so many times and they'll say, are you saying that I can do this? I'll go, do you want to do that? Well, no. <laughs> there you go. That's my point. If you're saved by grace and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you just don't want to. Do. I remember Pastor Chuck saying one time, a guy come up to me and he goes, well, I'd be a Christian, Chuck, but I, I like drinking beer. Chuck said, I drink all the beer I want. He said, really? Chuck said, yeah. I just don't want any. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. But see, that, that's a fact. That's the gospel. You know, when you try to live by rules and regulations, then you have, poor, I've got a friend right now, and, and I love him. He, I won't say where he lives, but it's not far. Me and my wife will be out there, and I'll see them, and he'll be sneaking around the back, smoking, you know? 
And I think it's funny. He's a Christian. And yet, I've asked him. We had a discussion. I said, so do you think that that's sin? No. Then why do you hide it? Why do you hide it? You know, if it's not sin, and, it, and I don't believe that it is, I don't think you could back that up with Scripture if you had to. But you want to smoke, go ahead. It ain't, it ain't good for you, but, you know, somebody look at, who was the cigar guy? Lived to be 100? George Burns. Yeah, he smoked like 20 of them things a day. Lived to be 100. Had he quit, he might have made it to 101. You know? But my point is, it's not, it's not a sin, but my point is, is that he evidently thinks it is. You understand? When the Bible says to him who esteems anything to be sin, to him it is sin. You know? And so that's a problem. You know, but once again, it's that rules and regulation type thing. You know, when you look at your relationship with God as being governed by rules, well, then nothing's clean. You know, to him who esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So it's that kind of thing. You know, but, but that's what Paul's fighting against. When we embrace grace, you begin to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not your works that you're leaning on. It's his works that you're leaning on. Grace and peace. You know, as we said Sunday, you're never going to know the peace of God, which brings the happiness of God, until you really understand the grace of God. Look at verse 8. He says, but though we are an angel from heaven, if you're taking notes, you need to make note of this. This is a powerful verse. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you. And Paul's already said there is no other gospel because it's not a gospel. Then that you have, have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now, man, you can't get stronger than that in the Greek. Accursed. Let him be damned is what Paul's saying. Oh, my. You mean this great man of God wished that somebody would be condemned? Uh, yeah. He absolutely did if they preached any other gospel. If they tried, because God doesn't want to see you in bondage. How would you feel if somebody were to take one of your loved ones and put them in prison for something that they didn't do or maybe even did do. You steal your child, steal your kid. Who wants to see their kid in trouble? Nobody. Not, not if you've got natural affection. And that's the way God looks at you. He loves you extremely, unconditionally. We don't grasp that. But whether you've been bad or good, you know, he still loves you. He's still, you're still his if you're in Christ. Once you're his, you're always his, you know. But Paul says, look, if, if somebody's preaching another gospel that's going to bring you into bondage and put you in, you know, in chains and shackles of the law, he's going, no, let him be accursed. Joseph Smith was the first prophet of the Church of Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they like to be called. And his testimony is that when he was a young man, this angel appeared to him and brought him the true gospel. Moroni told him that God had sent him and, 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 and had chosen Joseph to straighten out the entire Christendom, all 1,800 years of it, because ever since the days of the apostle, the gospel had been lost. Ain't that sad? 1,800 years, every church that ever existed was absolutely wrong, according to Moroni. God said so. And what must you do? Well, glad you asked. Moroni I told him, here's all you got to do. Well, you know, you got to believe, of course, that I'm an angel from God. And then you got, you don't want to make people believe that you're a prophet of God. Then you got to wear these holy underwear, uh, just special holy underwear. And then you got to be sanctified in the temple. We're going to build that later. And if you're really good and you really do everything and you keep your ties and you don't drink Pepsi or coffee, one of these days you're going to get to be a god and you're going to be a god and you're going to have your own universe just like Jesus did and you'll get to have spirit children and all kinds of crazy stuff and that's and you think I'm making that up I'm not making it up check me on that they believe that and this is the gospel that he preached and they believe that anybody who falls outside of that is not saved so as Paul said though I calling himself an apostle or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. 
Because God is never going to allow his children to be in bondage again to anything. He just won't tolerate it. Verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So Paul let them know that he was not trying to win a popularity contest. Somebody was talking about that earlier. Neither am I. Now, we all like to be liked. We all want to be loved. You know, when people hear me preach, I want them to see Jesus Christ. I want them to walk away knowing how much God loves them and how much. But I have been in the ministry too many years. I realize that the preaching of the gospel of grace offends a lot of people because they misunderstand what it is that's being taught. They misunderstood Paul. Paul says, as those who wrongly accuse him of saying, shall we sin because grace abounds? He said, God forbid. How should we who are dead to sin live any longer there in it? So Paul was not trying to win a popularity contest. He was trying to persuade them not to be moved. Stand fast in it. And you will have to. You know, and not only stand fast in the gospel of grace, but preach the gospel of grace. And when you hear somebody saying or doing something that is contrary to it, lovingly, gently, as much as you can, try to straighten them out because you're going to help them. I can't tell you how many stories I've been told. When somebody has sat and just listened, had one young lady tell me, and this has happened many, many times, but one that stands out to me. You know, she says, I've sat in a church for 20-some years, and I've never heard the gospel that you just preached. And I said, well, the gospel I just preached is the same gospel that Paul preached, the same gospel that John, you know, uh, Calvin preached, the, the same one that, that uh, you know, Martin Luther, and all the way down through the ages. I mean, this is nothing new. Because if it is new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it's nothing new. But yet she had never heard it. And her life was transformed by it. And every, I had a young man in, in, uh, up in Athens at the uh, college came to see us because he listened to us on radio. I'll never forget him telling me. He said, I was a United Methodist for years, all my life. He said, I started listening to you three years ago. This was last year. And he said, of course, he was listening to the, to the uh, teaching of Romans. And he said, I just want you to know, my life was totally transformed. He said, man, he said, I was a Pharisee like a Pharisee. He said, I just really, when I got to college, he said, I just looked down my nose at everybody. He said, the problem was, I was just as guilty of the stuff that I was accusing them of. And he says, but man, he says, when you really understand grace, it changed his life, you know? But that's what the Word of God does. That's what Paul is fighting against in this epistle. He's trying to keep people whom he had delivered once, who were walking in grace, from being ensnared again by the law and by trying to relate to God through rules and regulations, which never works. Jesus, what he did on the cross is sufficient. It's totally sufficient. And it's such a beautiful thing if you just embrace it, you know. And when, when, when the devil wants to whisper in your ear and say, well, you're not worthy, you go, yeah, I know. But he is, and that's who I'm trusting in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord Father, for the gospel of grace that you so eloquently, Lord Father, preached through Paul. And we thank you for it, Lord. I pray for those who... Maybe you're listening to this broadcast and or maybe their lives have been subjected to the course of sin and maybe trying to relate to you on a performance basis. Lord, I pray that they have heard the gospel of grace and that they will come to you in humility, Lord, and confess their sin and simply receive what Jesus has done for them by faith alone. We love you so much and we thank you be with your people, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.